this series for the last couple of weeks that I've called We Are Chosen. And I picked it up because this book, 1 Peter, has one of its central themes, a concept that is incredibly difficult for Christians. It's a concept that is so difficult, at least for American Christians, that it has caused the division of churches. In fact, it's caused the division of churches going back maybe 500 years, long before America. But it's one of the things that in America continues to be incredibly divisive among churches and among Christians. The big picture idea is, do you have the freedom of choice or does God choose you? That's a big, big dilemma. And one of the things that makes it such a big problem is that we live in a world, we live in an environment, and we have the souls that say we are in charge of our own lives. The way I've been phrasing it the last couple of weeks is, as a problem, Christians in America are prone to exactly the same kind of individualism as everybody else. You're in that world right now, I'm imagining, whether you're still in some sort of quarantine or lockdown situation, or whether your, your world has expanded beyond your own front door, yet I'm not exactly sure what your circumstances are, but a lot of us have been spending a lot more time in private in our own homes. A lot of us have, spend, have spent a lot more time in the pseudo-privacy of our masks, And we are just in a world where we are simultaneously feeling more independent and individualized than ever, while also feeling more lonely and more distant than ever. And the distance that we feel from other people can sometimes drive us to even deeper and stronger forms of individualism. And we think, I'm in charge of my own destiny. I have to make my own choices. I have to control these things because when the world around me is out of control, I want to be in control. And that's exactly where the book of 1 Peter shows up. Because the book of 1 Peter shows up, I haven't given you all the background details of this yet, but the book of 1 Peter shows up as Peter is writing a letter to Christians who are encountering some really tough stuff in their lives. Now, the stuff that they're encountering is literal persecution. Christians are being killed because they're Christians. Christians are being abused, attacked because they're Christians. Not because they stand for a particular political position. Not because they stand for a particular moral issue. They're being attacked simply because there's a guy named Jesus that they say rose from the dead. That's the basis of their martyrdom their criticism, their persecution. And Peter is writing this letter to these people who are going through such difficult times to try to encourage them that even though they're not in charge, someone is. And the solution that he gives is a solution that is simultaneously uncomfortable to us as American Christians, but simultaneously something that we should have known all along and something that is refreshing to our souls And something that is the solution to our problem. It's that God has chosen us. There's so many layers of meaning surrounding that. But the book of 1 Peter, that little letter that he wrote, is trying to communicate the significance of God choosing you. Some of the things we've seen the last couple of weeks, we'll just review them. We're chosen by God for His purposes. 
That's the first thing we've learned. We're chosen by God for his purposes. We're not chosen for our purposes or for some thing in this world that makes us so great. God didn't choose us because he thinks we're awesome. He chooses us because he's wanting to make us awesome. And that leads to the second one. We were chosen to display God's holiness. God already is holy and awesome and great and perfect. Someone told me yesterday that the idea of holiness is basically, I just don't get it. And when the angels say, holy, 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 they're saying, I don't get it. I still don't get it. I just don't get it. God, you're so far beyond anything I could imagine. And we are chosen by God to display that holiness. And last week we talked a little bit about what God's holiness means when it comes through my life. But today I want to take you to part one of two parts with the same basic idea. See, chapter three and chapter four are basically this one idea, and that's why I wanted to do them together. But instead, we're just doing chapter three today. Next week, we'll come back to chapter four, but it's this idea. God chose me to make me a blessing. You say that about yourself. God chose me to make me a blessing. I could say God chose us to make us a blessing, but that sounds, that sounds like it's only about the group of us. And even though that's true, I want you to know that God chose you also as an individual to make you a blessing, and he chose me as an individual to make me a blessing. Of course, the old joke goes, the guy gets a, a bottle that has a genie in it, he rubs the bottle or the lamp, the genie comes out, and the genie says, I'm going to give you three wishes. And the guy who's just hungry says, man, make me a sandwich. And the genie goes, poof, you're a sandwich. And I'm using this phrase to be exactly that double meaning. God chose me to make me a blessing. The problem is that it's not just he's going to make a blessing for me. It's that he is going to turn me into a blessing. God chose me to make me a blessing. And the difficulty is that with God, he's not satisfied with poof, you're a blessing. With God, the thing that takes you from where you are to blessing is not some magical finger snap or some abracadabra or some just poof moment. It's suffering. Pain is the thing that transitions a person from normal to blessing. Hardship is the thing that transitions a person from average to blessing. Without hardship, average stays average. But with hardship, average becomes a blessing. God chose you to make you a blessing even in response to suffering, and largely because of suffering. I want to take you to 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, and uh, we're going to walk through this a little bit today. I'm going to make it all the way through chapter 3, but um, I'm going to just read you verse 8 because we have to stop here after just one verse. He says this, finally, now whenever a pastor says finally, he's never done. He's just starting a new thing. And in this case, Peter has just finished, he's just finished talking about the good that should be in your life. 
He talked about husbands, how they should treat their wives. He talked about wives, how they should treat their husbands. He talked about the relationship between a slave and his master. He talked about all of our relationship to our governing officials. He talked about all of us as being people who represent God's holiness by being good. And then he says, finally, but he's not really meaning finally, this is the last thing I'm going to say. He means finally because he's saying, if you are representing God's holiness, this next thing is going to be the culmination of everything you need to know. Finally, all of you, be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. And the reason I'm pausing there is that we read that line and that sounds so Christian. It just sounds so normal Christian. Of course the Bible would tell us to love one another. Of course the Bible would tell us to be humble and compassionate. Of course the Bible would tell us to be sympathetic. That's the point in the Bible that we feel good and we shut it because we've heard the thing that we expected to hear. There's just one problem. This verse, even though it is so common and normal to anyone who thinks positively about God, as you all know, is incredibly difficult to actually live. Finally, all of you be like-minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. Peter, even in this verse, says, have brotherly love for each other. Love one another as if you were brothers and sisters, because in the family of God, we are brothers and sisters. But this is the kind of thing that I got to tell you is so difficult for people to obey, is so difficult for people to live out. I'll just make it really pointed to you. Look at this list of things, and I'll ask you easily, do you want these to be true in your life? Are you trying to make these true in your life? Are you trying to be like-minded or agreeable with other people? Are you trying to be sympathetic? Are you trying to love one another? Are you trying to be compassionate and humble? Most of the people I know say yes. I meet very few people in this world who say, listen, my top goal in life is to be as prideful as possible. The biggest thing I ever want to be is absolutely unsympathetic. I'm sick and tired of caring about other people. You've never heard someone say that kind of stuff. We all want these to be true in our life, okay? So now let me ask you. Think about a person, a relationship that you have that would be strained. A person with whom you are not like-minded, a boss, a coworker, a neighbor, a friend, a spouse. Think of a person that you know with whom you are not like-minded, and I'll ask you the same question about them. Do you think they are intentionally trying to be as unsympathetic as possible? Do you think they are intentionally trying to let pride govern their lives? Do you think they would say about themselves that they are trying to be sympathetic, love other people, be compassionate and humble? The truth of the matter is, for the vast majority of us, especially those of us who would claim to be followers of Jesus, the vast majority of us are trying to be good people like this. And that means you're trying to do the same thing they're trying to do, and for whatever reason you don't like them. And I don't like them. And we, we have these issues with each other. This is not... I, listen, I don't have enough time to get into the how you fix this problem. I'm just trying to point out to you that no matter how well you think you're doing at the humility thing, other people think the same thing and you don't like them. And you don't think they're doing it very well and they don't think you're doing it very well. This is hard. Let's just admit it. It's difficult. 
And maybe you're saying, yeah, but that's, you know, it's harder in churches because, you know, church people are closer than other people. We, we get to know each other a little bit better. And, and so we, it's, we, we hurt each other even more. Take a look at this next verse, verse 9. He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. This is a weird little phrase. He says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you are called so that you may inherit a blessing. Let me tell you why this is so weird. First of all, we know Peter is writing to people in the church. And then he says to them, do not repay evil with evil. That means in the context of the church, in the context of people who claim to follow Jesus, evil is going to happen. Some people are going to do evil to some other person. In the context of the church, if you've been in a church for long enough, you've experienced this. You've experienced evil that's been done to you. You've experienced yourself doing evil to someone else. And even though you give yourself more of a pass on that one, it's still something that has gone both ways. Peter is admitting the fact that in churches, in the family of God, evil also happens. Do not repay evil for evil. And he's in the context of talking about Christian churches, right? He's talking about these people that he's writing the letter to. He says, do not repay evil with evil. Now granted, he's also talking about the rest of the world. Don't repay evil with evil anywhere. But let me just highlight something. You all know what it means to buy something, right? You go to the store, you give them cash, they give you thing. Peter says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. They give you evil, you give them blessing. Repay evil with blessing. Here's the transaction that Christians engage in. I pay you in blessings. You give me evil. This is the transaction that Christians live in. I pay you with blessings. You give me evil. That doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound comforting. It doesn't sound easy. It doesn't sound enjoyable. It doesn't sound like a church I want to visit <laughs> where I go there and I give everybody blessings and everybody else just keeps giving me evil. It doesn't sound like a world I want to live in. I give people blessings and they give me evil. But Peter says, because to this you were called. God chose you for something that you don't want to do. God chose you and me for something that we don't want to do. He chose us to be people who pay in blessings and receive in pain. But notice the last little phrase. To this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. I pay in blessings. I ultimately inherit a blessing. I temporarily experience evil. I temporarily experience insult. I'm going to give it to you in two phrases. Earlier, the big picture phrase is that God chose me to make me a blessing. But 
Let's just unpack that with two other phrases. Here's this first one. I'm called to give a blessing in response to suffering. I'm called to give a blessing in response to suffering. Someone might give me suffering and I give them a blessing in return. I might give someone a blessing and they give me suffering in return, but that doesn't hinder the fact that I'm still giving them blessings. My blessings to them don't stop regardless of how much comes back to me or what kind of thing comes back to me. I'm called by God to give a blessing in response to suffering. But secondly, notice this, I'm also called to receive a blessing in response to suffering. You see that? I'm called, God has planned a blessing for me. He's planned an inheritance for me, and he is ready to give it to me. He chose me to make me a blessing. He's going to make me into a blessing for them, regardless of what they do to me. And he is going to make a blessing for me, regardless of whatever happens to me. I'm called to give a blessing in response to suffering. I am called to receive a blessing in response to suffering. The part that no one wants is the suffering. But God didn't call me to suffer. He called me to bless and to receive a blessing. God's goal for you and for me is that he would make us a blessing. I want that. I want to be a blessing. I want to have a blessing. It's just to get me from here to there requires this hop over pain. It's strange that we would think this is a rare thing for Christians to have to deal with because it's been a principle in God's Word from the very beginning. Look at verse 10. He says, for whoever would love life and see good, de- good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I can do this because God is paying attention to me. Do you see that? The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let me share with with you a, a principle that is throughout the Bible. From Genesis all the way through to Revelation. This is the way God always has worked. And it's the way God always will work. God pours out blessing. People have been designed to route the blessing to others and not expect that that blessing comes back to them. Because God is pouring out his blessing. 
God pours out grace. God pours out goodness. God pours out love. He pours it into me. My job is to be a conduit. My job is to route it. My job is to take the grace, goodness, blessing, wonder, amazement of who God is and all that he has done for me, and it is to route it into the rest of the world and to route it to people desperately needing it, regardless of what comes back to me. I receive from God good. I give good to others regardless of what comes back. Here's the problem. We think it always happens in this order and that's not true. We think that my job is to wait until I feel the goodness of God and then overflowing with God's goodness, I give some of it to someone else and then turn around and wait for more. And that's not exactly the way God works. Sometimes for humans, the order seems flipped. Sometimes for humans, I give a blessing when I don't have a blessing. And then after I am empty, then God fills me back up. Sometimes he gives it to me first. Sometimes I empty myself first. The order is the thing that you and I get so hung up on. Someone out there needs me. Someone out there needs something. Someone out there is suffering. And I don't feel strong enough to do anything about it. I am suffering. And I don't feel strong enough to show love back to the person who's causing it. And I'll just wait around for God to fix me, for God to make me feel better. Listen, all of us have been there. All of us do that. But Peter is telling us that you were called to something. You were called to be a blessing in response to suffering so that you may inherit a blessing. Peter isn't so worried about letting God bless me first and then I bless others. Peter is saying, listen, the order doesn't matter. You were called to something. And the reason we can trust it is that God is attentive to you. He's watching. He's paying attention. And if you do the right thing, he's ready to strengthen you. And if you do the wrong thing, he is ready to let you do it. But God is attentive. And so your question might be, well, can I really do this? Am I strong enough to do this? Well, pay attention because... Peter is about to go really difficult on us. And he's going to go really difficult on us in two ways. Number one, it's going to be difficult because what we're about to read is, I think, perhaps the most difficult passage in the New Testament to understand. The reason it's the most difficult passage in the New Testament to understand is that Peter is making a reference to the most difficult passage in the Old Testament to understand. And so there's this passage in the Old Testament that no one knows. I mean, literally, no one knows what it's about. But Peter makes a reference to that passage. And so now when we read Peter's words on it, we're like, I don't really know what Peter's talking about. And so I'm going to read this to you, and you're going to be like, huh? And I'm going to tell you that's okay. It's okay for you to feel the, the confusion here, because what we're about to read is super confusing. But the big picture point is super easy to understand. And that's the second thing that makes it difficult. Because once you understand what he's saying here, you don't, you don't want it. it. It was more comfortable being in the confusion. 
And so a lot of people I know just simply live in the confusion. They analyze the passage. They try to come up with answers. They get themselves wrapped up in the details of this most confusing passage in the New Testament because it allows them the freedom to ignore the big point. And the big point is so uncomfortable for us, especially here in America. I'll give it to you right up at the front. Jesus is strong enough to overcome suffering. Now, let me read it to you. Beginning in verse 13. Peter does the easy thing first. He says, Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for doing what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. I know a lot of people have those verses memorized. Those are good verses to memorize, encouraging verses to memorize. Keep going, verse 17. He says, for it's better if it's God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. That's another verse that a lot of people don't really memorize a lot. It's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Of course that makes sense. Because if you did evil and then you suffer for that, well, now you're suffering twice. But if you do good and then you suffer evil, well, then at least you can hope for eternity in heaven. And that's why he's saying it's, it's not a bad thing. But we haven't even hit the hard part yet. Verse 18 is where the hard part begins. For Christ also suffered for sins, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. The beginning of verse 18 is a great verse to memorize, by the way. The second half of verse 18 is where things begin to get a little confusing, but we... uh, just here you go verse 19 after being made alive he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when god waited patiently in the days of noah while the ark was being built in it only a few people eight in all were saved through water and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also not the removal of dirt from the body but the pledge of a clear conscience towards god it saves you by the resurrection of jesus christ who's gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Now, listen, this is incredibly difficult for us to understand because we get lost in the weeds. So I'm going to walk you through it just a little bit at a time. There are three questions that we need to deal with in this passage. Three questions that rise up that people allow themselves to get distracted by. I'm going to address these questions so that you don't get distracted by them anymore. Question number one, was Jesus' resurrection spiritual only? Was it spiritual only? I mean, did you read this verse? He says, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. There are some traditions who read this exact verse and they say, okay, so Jesus' body was dead, but his spirit came alive and everybody saw a ghost walking around. They never saw a physical resurrection. They just saw a ghost of Jesus walking around. Well, listen, Peter goes to his death believing that Jesus rose from the dead physically. 
And everything he says in his letter is based upon the fact that he physically saw and touched Jesus. So he's not saying that, even though you can misread it to say that. What he's saying is, Jesus was put to death from all of the forces of this fleshly world. The Greek word behind the word body is the word flesh, which sometimes is used to refer to the the negative sinful principles of this world here. And so Peter is saying that Jesus was put to death by all of the physical fleshly forces of this world. But the Spirit brought him back. The spiritual forces conspired to bring him back. The physical forces put him into the tomb. The spiritual forces brought him out. His point is that there's one set of forces which is stronger than another set of forces. And which side are you on? Are you on the side of all the people who are focused on just the physical realities of this world? Or are you focused on the fact that there's a God who's created us and the spiritual forces are real because they rose Jesus from the dead? I don't know about you, but I would rather be on the side of the forces that can bring someone back from death than on the side of the forces that can only put him into the tomb. I think these ones are stronger. I'd rather be on this side of things. That's the first thing you need to know. The second question is, does baptism save you? There's this weird little verse in there about verse, in verse 21. This water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. It's like, okay, wait a minute. Are you saying that baptism saves people? Let's just get his metaphor here, okay? He says that during the days of Noah, there was a flood. Do you remember what happened in the flood? Noah and his family survived by riding in an ark. And everybody else who was in the water without the ark, they were in the water, they died right? So those who are in the water are not alive. Those who are in the water are not saved. Those who are in the water are dead. But those who are pulled out of the water are saved. Peter's point isn't that baptism saves you. His point is that baptism is a symbol of your death. It's the fact that you were pulled out of that water by Jesus' resurrection power pulling you out of the spiritual death you were in and whoever baptized you pulling you out of the physical water. That's why Peter says this isn't washing dirt from your body. This is a pledge. But there's a third question. And the third question is, did Jesus go to hell? Verse 18, he was put to death in the body, made alive in the spirit. After being made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently. Did Jesus go to hell and preach something there? Uh, let me just deal with this real briefly again. So we're still in academic mode for just a moment. The first question is, who are the imprisoned spirits? Well, there's this passage in the, in the book of Genesis before the flood of Noah where we read about these angels. They're not called angels, though. They're called sons of God. And they marry the daughters of men. 
And you can, you can read it. It's back in the Noah story. Before we get to Noah and the flood, it's the Noah story. The, the sons of God are marrying the daughters of men and having children by them. And God views that as being wrong. He views that as being inappropriate. So then the question is, the question is, are the sons of God angels who have done something evil by somehow physically copulating with women, which by the way, we should know that Jesus himself says that angels are neither male nor female. They're neither given in marriage or, or received marriage. So something about angels is like a-masculine or a-feminine. They, they don't really have a gender. And, and so the idea of angels coming down to earth and copulating with earthly women doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Maybe, though, it's human beings who are like righteous human beings who then got mingling with unrighteous human beings. Or, or maybe it was the children of Adam and Eve directly from Seth who were then marrying some of the descendants of Cain. Let me just tell you, we don't have a clue. No one knows. Like literally, no one knows the answer of who the sons of God are and who the women were and what this relationship was. We don't know. And anyone who tells you that they know are lying or they're just trying to get you to follow them for some reason. It is one of the most difficult passages in the Old Testament. We just don't know. And so Peter makes a reference to that. Why would Peter make a reference to that? Because there were sinful people going all the way back before the days of Noah. There have been sinful people all along. So who are the imprisoned spirits? We don't know. Maybe they are angels that are facing some kind of judgment. Maybe they are demons that are facing some kind of judgment in some sort of jail. Maybe they are the human beings who've sinned throughout humanity's history who are now imprisoned because, you got to know, before the end of time, what we call hell is really just a place of holding. In the end of time, it will be the lake of fire into which hell is thrown. Maybe it's human beings who are imprisoned. Let me give you my answer. I don't know. And that's okay. We don't know who the imprisoned spirits are. Okay, so now, did Jesus go to hell? Maybe. If he did go to hell, when? <laughs> he, he, when did, was it between the day he died and the day he rose? So on Friday he dies, and then on Sunday he rises, and then somewhere in the middle there he descends to hell so that he can preach to the, to the imprisoned spirits there? Maybe. Maybe it's, you know, after he rose on Sunday and he says to Mary Magdalene, don't touch me. I haven't visited my father yet. Maybe he's going to make a visit through hell to then go visit his father and then come back to visit the disciples and say, hey, I'm alive. Maybe it was then. Maybe it was after he levitated off the planet and headed back up to heaven that on his way up to heaven, he proclaimed victory over the souls imprisoned in Hades. And then, by the way, what was that all about? Did he proclaim the good news? Like, did he say, now you're in hell or Hades, but you give you get a second chance and he's proclaiming the gospel to them or is he proclaiming hey you're in hell and Hades and you don't get a second chance and then it's like a taunt or is it proclaiming over the forces of Satan that he's victorious we don't know and if you worry too much about this complicated thing that we don't know you will miss the big picture and the big picture was in the last verse did you see it 22 did you see it 
Jesus has gone into heaven and is at God's right hand with angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Verse 18, Christ suffered. Verse 22, Jesus has all authority over anything in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I wrote basically a little paragraph for you to summarize this. I'll put it up here. Jesus has authority over everything, life and death, the living and the dead, the good and the bad, the angels and the demons, and all powers anywhere, so he is strong enough to make me a blessing even through suffering. Because that's who he is. You want to be more like Jesus? I'm sorry to inform you. The Jesus I know about is the Jesus who experienced incredible blessing and authority on the backside of suffering. Go back to verse 13. And all this is going to come together. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. The point. You're going to face difficult circumstances. You're going to face hardship. You're going to face suffering. But because you're a Christian, and because you know that blessing is on the backside of suffering, and because you know that you as a Christian are a blessing even in the midst of suffering, you have a kind of hope that no one gets, that no one understands. You have a kind of hope that no one ever figures out. And so they'll ask you, what's your deal, man? Why are you so kind to me? I've been mean to you for 15 years. What is your problem? <laughs> They're going to ask you things like that. And you're going to be ready to give a reason for your hope. A lot of people use this passage as a way of saying, you need to be well equipped to tell everybody all the reasons why Jesus rose from the dead. And maybe that is your reason for your hope. And if so, be equipped. And maybe your reason for your hope is that you suffered and Jesus came through for you. But always be ready to give an answer for the reason for your hope. Not all the analytics unless those are your reasons for your hope. But just to say, why is it that I'm still a blessing when the world around me is crumbling? Why is it that I can still feel blessed when the world around me is crumbling? Why is it that I can go through suffering and see it as a blessing and have hope? I'll give you three things to take home with you. Number one, I want you to take this phrase and make it real. I am eager to do good. It's simple, right? Simple. The problem is we lose our eagerness when we're facing hardship, difficulty, frustrations, depression. When we're going through hard times, we lose our eagerness to do good. And we gain blaming of those who do bad. Let's not be that. Let's be those who are eager to do good. Is something good to do? 
Be eager for it. Number two, I am armed with hope, not fear. The world around me experiences fear and confusion. I'm not like that. I don't have to worry about the fear and the confusion the rest of the world faces because I'm armed with hope. And if I go through suffering, there's a blessing on the other side. And if I go through suffering, suffering, I'm the blessing in the midst of it. I've got all kinds of hope the rest of the world doesn't know about. I'm not armed with fear. I'm armed with hope. And then number three, I live with gentleness, respect, and integrity. I live with gentleness, respect, and integrity. Have you ever met a Christian with a bullhorn? Maybe, maybe not a literal physical bullhorn, but I think you probably know what I mean. The, the kind of Christian who is always telling you why they're right and you're wrong. The kind of Christian who's always telling you what it is that you need to do to get your act together. The kind of Christian who's always telling you why you aren't good enough and why they are. I have a friend who got involved with a a group of people who go from college campus to college campus, standing on the corners of sidewalks, telling women they're whores, and telling every man that he's going to hell because of the lust in his heart. And they they just go from college campus to college campus judging people. And I met with this guy once in a coffee shop. And I took this verse. I was like, is that being gentle? Is that being respectful? Is that being a person of integrity? How how many times have we seen the story of a Christian person who pointed fingers at others and then had the news media find out something about them? Listen, I'm just going to say this. The most difficult thing that Christians have to face is the most difficult thing that anyone else has to face. It's called suffering, hardship, frustration, difficulty, persecution, insults. We all face it. The difference is that you are called to it. You you reach the pinnacle of who you are as a person in the midst of it. The rest of the world can't handle this. But you as a Christian, I as a Christian, we thrive in it. Christianity has for centuries grown during times of persecution and dwindled during times of comfort. We thrive when we face hardship, when we face difficulty. Paul says, that's why I boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses. I thrive in this difficult time because I was called to be a blessing in the midst of it and to see a blessing on the other side of it. God chose me to make me a blessing. And he chose you to make you a blessing. And so live with integrity. Do good. Be eager to do good. Live with hope, not fear. And stand in the face of a frustrated world as a person who thrives with adversity. Because it doesn't matter what this world puts on you, and it doesn't matter what you encounter, what you go through, what you face. We are the ones who are called to it. We are the ones who thrive in it. Because God chose us to make us a blessing. Listen, I hope that this week you can embrace this 
Not in the downtrodden, frustrating way, oh, how is God going to make me suffer? But in the recognition that there are ways you're already suffering and you just need to thrive more in the midst of it. We need to be people of blessing. We need to be people who are the blessing, who bring the blessing, who give the blessing, because we have a blessing waiting for us. Let me pray. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.